This is our penultimate episode of the series on Jim Dunnigan's Wargaming History. The last episode will be Jim answering your questions. Post them here in the comments section. Welcome, Jim, Al, and Austin. We're continuing our discussion of the, the history of SPI and uh, Jim's efforts in wargaming. Today, we're going to talk about something that's close to all of our hearts. Um, the one game that it was near the end of your tenure at SPI, Jim, but the idea yeah. for it had been around for, I know, since 1978, at least, because that's where I've seen some comments in uh, uh, strategy and tactics about it. In fact, I think it was under another name at one point, but we're going to talk about the <clears throat> empires of the Middle Ages and then the taking it and uh, evolving it into the Hundred Years' War, a game that uh, the Al, Jim, and myself were involved with in the uh, late... Oh, I think we started the the project in 18... Uh, 18 79. It, yeah. Well, you, you started it in 79, but I got involved in 89, and uh, we took it to... Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was the 80s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, uh, we took it to Genie, and then we, it was online for Genie, which was uh, General Electric's competition to CompuServe, and then we, we went over to AOL for a while, and uh, then uh, that ended, and we took it to the internet for, for some time until um, we decided to shut it down. Uh, because we just couldn't compete with what was out there, <clears throat> and we didn't have the money to invest in a uh, an uplift to to get the game looking better. So, but let's talk about Empires of the Middle Ages first. Um, do you remember what it it was the development name for it was? Because I believe it was not Empires of the Middle Ages. I think it was just empires. Okay, that I could mean, this be. Is four years ago, so memory memory gets a little fuzzy. Uh, yeah, I've been kicking around for a while. I never had time, you know. As as time went on at SPI, I was spending more and more of my time on business stuff. And of course, in the late seventies, we had that huge burst of inflation, <coughs> and that caused financial problems. And then there was D and D, the fantasy game, uh, which we we got into. I forget when uh, our first science fiction game came out. Uh, what Star Force, I think it was called. But anyway, that surprised us. It did extremely well. I mean, it, it did okay on the feedback, but when it got out to the marketplace, there were a lot more people who never, you know, didn't know about Strategy and Tactics magazine. Who are into that sort of thing? Same thing with uh, games like uh, uh, you know D and D fantasy games. Um, so you know, <laughs> feedback has its limitations. You know the feedback system. Um, but I I really you know uh, I, I I wanted to do it, and uh, Empires was sort of an experiment. Uh, over the years, I have been using the uh, you know my designs as a way of training new designers. In other words, people would be developers, which are basically people who supervise the playtesting, spot problems, solve them themselves. If they can't, they bring them to me, and I usually figure out a solution. Um, some of those some of those uh, jam sessions, you know, are, are legendary. I mean, a lot of people remember those. Um, and uh, Steve Buscemi was up and coming, as it were. Uh, he was willing to take it on, and and Redmond was very interested, uh, which is unusual. He was he was I mean he was interested in historical games, but he was more of a, a science fiction fantasy guy. In fact, he was he was pleasantly surprised that that Star Force did so well because that was his baby. Um, so uh, so it was it was fortuitous. I mean, I did the outline, uh, <coughs> and uh, as I described the the uh, War Games Design Book. Uh, or the War Games Handbook, it's several editions. You know, the basic uh, the basic routine for designing a game is to come up with a concept, put together a prototype, and try and play it. <laughs> it won't play the first time, but it won't play well at all. Now you always have the benchmark 
of history, and we had that in spades. This is where Al came in handy because he was more he was he was more up as it were with the detail of the the Middle Ages, uh, and he would always uh, sniff out you know historical flaws that were not readily obvious. Um, Anyway, the uh, I came up with the the uh, you know the basic uh, concept you know, with the cards and the endeavors and you know the the, the the time period itself and and the importance of things like ethnicity, religion, uh, and uh, what have you. Uh, for example, some, among the many things we had to be able to reproduce was the impact of the Crusades, not the not the Middle Eastern Crusades, but the European Crusades. And the major one was the, uh, the Prussian Crusade, German Crusade against the Prussians. The Prussians at that point were still a Slavic tribe, a Slavic group of tribes <laughs> who have went extinct during the uh, Crusades, which is not unusual. Um, and um, they, uh, he was Herman von Salz, I think was the guy's name. He went to the Pope for you know the official imprimatur to conduct a, a, a crusade. In the 13th century, it was 12 something. At the time, the Mongols were burning down Baghdad, um, and uh, the Pope said, "Yeah, Domini, Domini, go do it." And uh, because the Pope was more interested in the Middle East, because the Middle Eastern Crusades were mainly about protecting Christians who wanted to visit the Christian holy places, which the Muslims insisted were now Muslim holy places, and that got a little sticky. Actually, it still is. But anyway, the um, uh, that was one of the many things we had to handle. We also had to handle the um, uh, the continued activity of the um, uh, the uh, the very uh, the external invasions. Uh, the Mongols, obviously, they they came in and they they could have been done a lot more problems. Uh, the plague, which was a big thing, we had to get involved with that. Also, the stability of empires. So we started off with historical leaders, and they evolved. I forget the exact mechanism. Like I say, it's been 40 years. But everybody involved in the game, including Redmond, became very expert in the details of, uh, of medieval history. I'll saw to that. Uh, you know, Redmond, some guys got irked at Al because, you know, I take Redmond aside more than I says, Al keeps us straight, honest. And uh, somewhat above criticism, and that you know that appeals to his art director's heart. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, it, it was pretty enthusiastically received by the staff. There was a lot of people playing it. In fact, after I left SPI in 1980, shortly after publication, um, I um, I kept hearing from people who were playing Empires of the Middle Ages. I even got hooked. I even got hooked into a couple of games. Which is the last time I played it in the early '80s and what have you. Um, but as is my custom with the games I design, I <laughs> my entertainment is designing them, solving the problems, playing them. You know, eh, play testing them is interesting because there are still problems to find. Um, but you know, empires you know well, went out uh, in pretty good shape. I think there was decision games when they took over the copyright. They did a. Uh, they did a, a second edition. Yeah, they've, after, they've, after, after, it was after. Yeah, they've they've done another edition of it. Uh, it it was received well. People were excited that it was back in print. I think you might still be able to buy it. Uh, there was some criticism that they sort of messed up the map. Uh, I I don't know what the issues were there. Yeah, they but. changed they changed the map and they, they can't, there's always something. I mean, the, the one thing I'll, I'll hand is the decision. They're run by gamers, so that's that's a plus. Um, and basically, to uh, and to come out with an improved version of a game, all you have to do is collect the criticisms, the you know the the errata, as it were, and the obvious errors. Some are just, you know, uh, style. I, was, I, I don't like it working this way. I mean, I would always tell people who criticize games, I said, well, design your own version. And they'd laugh. And, no, no, don't mock me. I said, no, I'm serious. You know, the nice thing about manual games is if you've played them at all and if you've played them enough, you can tinker with them. I mean, and, and we encourage that. 
Uh, in fact, some games, uh, this is presages the uh, computer games where they had, you know, uh, editing tools uh, for the players to create their own, you know, levels or whatever the case may be. In fact, Sid Meier, who came out with a, <laughs> his own take on that sort of thing, Civilization, which I think first appeared in the early 90s when DOS machines were uh, capable of sufficient graphics to support a game like that. I believe it was very chunky graphics. I followed that. I'd buy copies of it up to Civilization Four because I was curious about how they improved it and, and again, addressed user you know, criticism. Um, yeah, they're, they're up to Civilization Six now. In fact, yeah, I, I've avoided buying it because it's such a time it's such a time sink for me. So I <laughs> I would I would load them up, play a few times, you know, not throughout the whole thing, but yes, they are a time sink. Uh, and then delete it. Uh, but the uh, I I didn't get Civilization Five because I check out the reviews and what have you, and it said it had you had to play it connected with Steam. I think it was. It had to be an online yes, collection. Yes, that it. it <laughs> and one of the and one of the problems with uh, with uh, my doing it, well, I didn't like it on general principles. But anyway, um, is uh, when I was you know more or less. You know, uh, working full time downtown. Uh, in order to work at home, I had certain security systems installed on my PCs, and this is one reason why I'm still to this day, you know, running Skype off my Mac laptop instead of my my main machine. I tried it a few times. Actually, the, the system, that security system, has been removed, but you know, force of habit. Uh, but while I was still in force, you know, I, I could I could download Steam, I can install Steam, but if I try to use it <laughs> with a with a game on the on the on my machine, you know, remotely, it you know, all sorts of errors and I, I inquired of the guy who supplied that system. He says, No, no, it won't allow, just like with Skype. Doesn't trust Skype, even though Skype is pretty secure. So anyway, I said, all right, screw it. You know, I, I don't like on general principle playing a game like that. And, you know, I, I don't know how far it's gone. I, you know, again, I read reviews and what have you. Um, uh, I, it still sells, so obviously it's succeeding. Um, but that was something bound to happen. In fact, I, I, I think once when I was down in Texas, Al, <clears throat> when you were down there, there were some guys from, um, I guess I was giving a talk at that group. With that, whatever that convention or grouping, group meeting was, there were some guys from Microsoft who were old SPIers, and a couple of them came. And Microsoft had done a game. Uh, it wasn't called Civilization. It was called something else. But it was basically about you know. Uh, in fact, it wasn't. It was real time. In other words, it wasn't turn based. But they said you know they Civilization was an inspiration. Uh, they they you know uh, you know paid homage by borrowing as many as much stuff as they could from it, um, but you know that I said that this morning. They said, "Yeah, you told us to do it." I said, "Indeed, I did. I suggested it. Don't say I told you. That could be litigated." Um, and uh, and that continues, you know. So the the basically uh, civilization genes are in all modern um, you know uh, games of that type. Which deal in you know uh, long periods of history and many of the uh, the details. And as I talked about the last couple of times, I went to the conventions and gave, we gave all those talks. <clears throat> you know the SBI staff in general. I had the Napoleon at IBM talk, which I think the first one was in '78. But anyway, I was watching very carefully because we were early adopters of the PCs. They were all over SPI. Oh yeah, and one of the things that was was diverting my attention, you know, in '79 and '80 when we were finishing when we were doing Empires of the Middle Ages. What month was that published, by the way? I was trying to calculate what the cutoff date was. But anyway, um, what I was. Al, you remember? I'm, I'm looking at uh, Wikipedia. Wikipedia has an entry on the Empires of the Middle Ages, by the way. And uh, it doesn't have – it has the year, but it doesn't have the month. So it's, you know, 1980. Yeah, the month was I, – I, I left in, I left in uh, late uh, September, I think it was, uh, 1980. Anyway uh, – we usually got a game out about two months after, uh, you know, we locked the uh, the design, uh, and 
I've tried for years to get the publishing book publishing industry to use the same tools, and uh, they eventually did, but I was banging my head against the wall most of the time. Anyway, the um, uh, Empire, I was trying to develop uh, software-based tools on the PCs. We had the, uh, not the, uh, not the uh, uh, Apple, but the, uh, the Radio Shack, because they were cheaper, and, you know, for, they were, they were intended more for business than the, the Mac was in those days. And uh, we developed some programs for generating CRTs, or more importantly, modifying CRTs, and other probabilistic things. I'd actually started that on a programmable calculator. I think it was the HP 41. It used these uh, plastic chips <laughs> to store your code on, as it were. And I, I did that with financial stuff, but you could also do it with game routines. You know, that's what we were doing for routines. Now, the problem with, uh, like, uh, the, game, like the uh, Eastern Front, the war in the east, uh, they had, we had that production system, which was a bear. And we had the guys, we were, I think we were programming in COBOL at that point. Uh, Steven and what's his name, the other guy. Uh, they wrote a program, uh, basically, uh, <coughs> well, I, I laid out what the formula was for the production system and whatnot. And uh, what the variables and whatnot, what the data sets were. And they wrote this program. And it would crunch after a couple hours. It would go through, you know, the entire war, month by month, or week by week, as the case may be, and give you the production. And we could change various, we could change with the variables on the, on, on the, with the code, or actually with the front end, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the user, uh, page of the program. And, and then let run. And that way we were able to tweak the production system. So A, it was historical, and B, it didn't screw up the game. Uh, and that's the sort of things we were working on then. I really could have used it for empires because we had all these subsystems interacting. You know, the leaders, the, their characteristics, the uh, characteristics of the various uh, you know, regions and what have you, the external events and what have you. But by that time, we had a lot of guys who were able to do that in their heads. That's something you only acquire over time. Um, and uh, we had enough people basically to get it done. It really depended on experienced playtesters, developers, and and of course Redmond and his crew in the art department. So it was, it was a bravo, you know, uh, you know, it was it was a joint effort. That's why uh, Redmond and and Steve got uh, design credits. Usually, Redmond would just get his credit for you know design, uh, graphic systems, and the developer would get a you know, a credit and what have you. Uh, uh, and we explained over and over again what the developer was and how important they were. In fact, we even gave, gave the uh, copy editor, what the hell was his name? He went down to work with, uh, he ended up with in Washington with uh, Booz Allen, with uh, Mark Herman. And he was very important. And uh, uh, and so it, it, it was a good game because SBI had really reached the peak of its capabilities in terms of it turning out, you know, complex systems uh, you know, uh, in a playable form, because I was always a, a nut on playability, and for a complex game like uh, Empires, uh, it was very playable, and I think that's one reason why it was so popular and is still popular. I don't know if anybody ever put it on a computer. Uh, they did. They they put some. They put it on the computer as Rise of the West. Uh, it, it was uh, really early, and it, I think it was TSR uh -huh. that did it when TSR acquired uh, SPI. But, uh, you know, they're, I don't I know how well received it was. It was a computerized because TSR didn't have it that long. Uh, they, sold, they sold it off uh, relatively soon. Um, and I know uh, the guy, the army retired army doctor who was running decision games, uh, he hired a lot of people. And for a while, I wrote a couple articles for them, uh, like, the, like the talk we're doing now. Um, and uh, I, got, I was comped up through, I forget when I stopped getting it. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I threw them all out because, you know, I don't keep a lot of stuff. And uh, they were doing a pretty good job. Uh, Steve Miranda, I think he's the main guy. I think he's broken my record for the number of uh, manual games designed by one guy. So, I mean, he certainly, you know, deserved it because he's quite good. Um, 
and and they're still going. Uh, you know, not as it originally was with a game in every issue. They have several magazines with no games in them, and I and I think you can buy. They I think they sell a lot of the games, uh, you know, separately. Uh, but they still maintain, you know, an outlet for games. In fact, I did an analysis a few years back, uh, crunched the numbers as much as I could find, and there were more games, um, manual games being published, uh, well, at least in the 1990s and into the uh, uh, into the aughts, as it were, uh, than there were at the the height of SPI, which is breaking all kinds of records. I mean, we published 500 games, I think, during our our tenure, um, but the uh, the automation of uh, uh, you know the uh, of, uh, of creating graphic systems and and uh, and writing rules, which we started you know with our uh, with our computerized typesetting system, which was like a PC you know hooked up to a a a, a machine that could print out uh, the same sort of stuff you'd go to the uh, you know to a professional outfit for. Uh, and of course, using the PCs uh, with uh, with master rules, so you didn't have to start writing rules from scratch. We we had a library. Uh, I think for a while, uh, for several years, all the games we did were done on the uh, you know on a computer, um, and uh, and so they were easy to edit. That was the main reason. The developers and the guys who end up they end up writing rules. They loved it. Uh, because they could basically, you know, make all kinds of changes, uh, put a date on. It, and I says, look, make sure you date every every version, and um, and then hand out. You know, we could print it out or print out one copy, and then Xerox, you know, multiple copies, because people hated those damn dot matrix printers. Um, and uh, so every week, you know, when the playtesters would roll in, there'd be a new set of rules based upon their input. And that was great for the morale of the playtesters. They said, boy, we're not able to listen to them. They're acting on it. You know, astonishing. Um, but it was really necessary, especially for a game like Empires, which wasn't particularly difficult to playtest. You know, uh, we had, like I said, we had experienced playtesters who knew the kinds of problems we were looking for. Not like, I don't like the color of this. At that point, we could we could basically create a one-master playtest map, and then uh, we had this stat machine in the back, which could make big, you know, uh, game game board size uh, copies of it. These are black and white, of course, although some people, they could color them in if that was essential for the play of the game. Um, uh, so... Uh, you know, we were basically keeping up with the technology, as it were, and the technology just took off, you know, after SBI went out of uh, existence in 82 or 83, whatever the hell it was. And um, uh, I think Empires of the Middle Ages was not just a very good game, but it was a very good example of what experience and developing better uh, game development and design tools uh, can do, not just in making it easier to uh, to uh, Produce a game. I mean, to create a game and produce it, but also easier to, you know, on everybody involved, including the playtesters and the people who have to revise rules. Al, Al, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the historical research and the thought that went into some of the systems and like that? There were there were flocks of problems, like Jim mentioned, the languages. Uh, Nobody spoke a national language in those days, so the, <laughs> we, you know, I mean, you know, you go you go from one town to the next, and the language is slightly different. You go you go, you know, fifty towns further, and you may not be able to understand them, but you're both supposedly speaking French. You know, well, you know, obviously it's more likely you're supposedly speaking some some degenerate form of Latin. You know. Uh, so there was a lot of need to just figure out which of the broader dialects, you know, we would we would be you know we'd work with. We we didn't want too many, but we did need to have the, the variations in there. Then, then of course, uh, many of the uh, regions are. Uh, how should I put it? Uh, could have really weird ownership. In other words, you know, it's sort of like when the kings of England were also the dukes of Normandy, uh, you know. Uh, so um, it, it creates 
you know that was a that was a simple example. There were guys who had allegiance to three or four different uh, states, and we had to we had to systematize those. And uh, I'm trying to remember um, uh, 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 some of the weirder things, but I can't at the moment. It's a long time ago. <laughs> um, uh, you had to deal with religion. Religion, yes, of course. You know, there were several varieties of Christianity. And then, of course, there were some pagans on the fringes there and the Muslims and on the other fringes. Um, the, the the big difference between doing – it actually is, is more complicated than like doing the Roman Empire because at least you have one government. Um, and here you have, you know, flocks of different governments and different groups and organizations claiming to be in control. Um I guess you could sort of say some of these states were like Austria-Hungary, you know, where, where there was one, there was this German guy in charge, but then, the, you know, so the Germans were on top, but then, then you know, the Hungarians were second, and then there were this group and that group and the other group and so on. Uh, and they were all supposedly one state, when in fact, of course, they weren't. Um, but uh, trying to figure that out was, was very you know, difficult. The plague was difficult. We, should, we, we had to figure out how the plague moved. And um, uh, we eventually, I'm not even sure if it was me who turned it up. It might have been some, somebody else who was also helping with the research. Someone turned up a paper that sort of had an almost month-by-month, month, uh, you know, sort of map right. show, sh showing where the plague was. Uh, over over the uh, well, I guess it was roughly what two years, I think, or three yeah. years, you know. Um, and that was that was like great because then you could at least figure out how fast the, the plague spread. Um, um, I think we worked it out. Was it two miles a day or something? Was the yeah, uh, yeah something like that. Um, and another, another another interesting angle to that was for many parts of Europe that never got the plague, at least yeah. not in the first go round. Yeah, yet uh, Bohemia and and chunks of Poland, I think, uh, yeah, for some reason, one. just didn't get the plague. Uh, now, someone suggested that because in Eastern Europe there were there were still bathhouses, but that hmm. doesn't hold water. Well, that's a bad way of saying. It. <laughs> the problem is that in 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 the in some regions, especially uh, Mediterranean fringe, there were bathhouses. You know, the, the Roman custom of having bathhouses was still there. You know, and uh, so uh, people were relatively cleaner, or at least the, the fleas had you know got drowned occasionally. Uh, so, so, but we did have to try and figure out. Should we just declare that these areas are immune to the plague, or or figure out some way that the randomness would leave certain areas, uh, you know, un, unaffected, uh, which I believe is the way it ended up. Um, and of course, the plague could always come back. Uh, uh, and moving, I'm trying to think. Uh, we we made one mistake on the map. You remember? Um, one, one one province didn't have a, a link to the country that it was, you know, the, the larger group that it was supposed to be associated with or something. And so we had to put in a note saying, draw a line. You remember, remember that, Jim? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah because there were, there were a lot of areas uh, in Europe during that period and subsequently up to the 19th century. Uh, that were separated from the uh, the entity, yeah. uh, the larger entity that they were a part of. But for purposes of our game, we had to have some way to link the, uh, the all the the areas and what have you. And I mean, the Habsburgs were a good example of that. You know, they had the Netherlands, they had Spain, they had parts of Italy, et cetera, et cetera. But the Netherlands really stuck out like a sore thumb because they were in the middle of you know all this uh, Protestantism um, and um, and of course, eventually the Dutch, you know, chased the Spaniards out. But the Spaniards, you know, they hung in there for a long time. Yeah, one of the things, um, you know, just thinking about so how much easier it would be to do the game today. Oh yeah, 
because we have so much access. You know, this to where before we had to go to the library every you know. And well, that too. Yeah, you know, uh, just just well, the physical yeah, task. Of, yeah, the other big thing is like that paper you found, and like what's his name, the guy who did Roman Manpower yeah. uh, after the uh, the uh, the Carthage War, the Carthaginian uh, Punic Wars. Uh, there was a lot of scholarship coming out in the in the sixties and seventies, and we were we were among the, I think the first to put it to use. We, we were waiting for stuff like that, uh, and there's been a lot more since. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, as we discovered. A lot of this uh, this information was only necessary because of what we what uh, what I think was called the memorial project during the 19th century, where it became all the craze to uh, to study uh, you know records going back hundreds of years, which were sitting you know in churches and and mainly you know yeah. clerical you know records, uh, which were invaluable for all sorts of uses, because a lot of them disappeared in the 20th century because of all the wars. Yeah, um, and. If they hadn't been collected in books and the books distributed around the world, you know, it would have been lost forever. Um, and I think that, that taught a lot of historians a serious lesson. And there was a lot more collection. Even the Russians, they, they were they were very good at it. And the stuff they released, they had that, what's his name? He did a book on World War One. Uh, how we use that. Um, but it was enormous, a, a, a very professional job, as it were, very German. Well, they actually, they brought a lot of the technology and a lot of those ideas from the Germans, but they went them one better in terms of uh, of applying them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that is something that doesn't get enough credit, the uh, the increase of, of quantitative, you know, analysis. They had a word for it, you know, the uh, uh, something or other history. Uh, but after after the 70s, it became taken for granted. If you were going to do serious history, uh, and there's less and less of that these days, uh, you had to be able to, you know, uh, uh, put the numbers out there, verify verifiable, agreed, numbers agreed upon. I mean, the worst example of how that came to be abused was when they started this whole uh, uh, global warming thing. It it's eventually had to be changed to climate change, which, of course, the climate's always changing. And we found that out when we were doing, uh, you know, empires of the Middle Ages because you had the the, uh, the Little Ice Age, which began in the, just before the plague arrived uh, a couple of decades. In fact, it was one reason why the plague uh, spread, because it did enormous damage to Europe. You know, suddenly the temperature got much colder. And areas that had been farmed, they were no longer uh, making their own wine in, in, in England. Um, and, uh, and people, you know, people, some people said, oh, it's the wrath of God. But, but you know, people with a, <laughs> I don't know, with a more fundamental uh, connection with the land realized that, you know, this is this is the change that happened. Actually, people didn't realize uh, what the patterns were. Until I guess the 20th, 19th, and 20th century, when they, get, when they began to understand, uh, you know, about the ice ages, uh, which have been dominant uh, on Earth for over a million years. You know, uh, yeah. mostly you have hundreds of thousands of years of ice, literally. I mean, ice sheets covering you know, North America that came down to the Midwest, um, and then you know, ten, twenty thousand years of warmer weather, and then it gets icy again. And we're due for another ice age, which doesn't get that you mentioned in this climate change. Well, actually, it's getting mentioned more now because it's, historically it's more of a threat because you know, when they were doing the whole uh, global warming, um, they uh, nobody wanted to mention that, you know, the, the initial, you know, uh, ice age, you know, started for no reason at all in the uh, uh, what, 13th century. And then it ended, you know, just as uh, seriously in the 19th century. Uh, when they were when we were pumping out, you know, more, you know, because of the Industrial Revolution, but not much more. When you start trying to measure it, you realize that, you know, cow farts were still a far bigger, you know, producer of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, climate damaging, you know, uh, chemicals uh, than all the steel mills and, and coal being burned. Um, but anyway, uh, for a while, you know, people really did their homework and then people started to cheat. Dan, could I make a, yep. a point about you, one of the things that uh, you sure Alan can. was touching on? And Jim, <clears throat> one of the things that impressed me about this game, and, and I understand I used it for 15 years in the, uh, the upper-level uh, honors class I taught, strategy and strategic theory for the honors program, undergraduate honors program at UT. 
uh, as I, I, I used Empires of the Middle Ages because, it, as, as Jim said, it fused so many different uh, components, historical components. As Jim was talking about leadership and uh, also even working in climate, one of the things that they had, too, is that certain uh, certain uh, areas were maritime, meaning that they, you know, they had uh, sea trading uh, uh, capabilities, one of the things that gave, gave Byzantium more, uh, more money. But also the linguistic links, which is what Al was getting at. Yeah, I was going to break in and say, Al, I don't speak French, I speak Provençal. But, they, you know, he was telling you that, uh, or Bretonese, which nobody could understand, right? But the, uh, far from the other, everybody else in, you know, early France, uh, the uh, 19th century uh, work primarily by, uh, well, the leaders in it were German philologists, where you end up with Indo-European, all the that linguistic connectivity is evident in the game, and that's one of the things that uh, enrich enrich the experience for 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 my students. We would play through because they were ten year terms, right? I think it was ten year a ten year term. Twenty five, whatever. Yeah, well, 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 it was five year terms with uh, so, and there were rounds in there. That uh, they would take. Right, right. Oh, okay, we go through it, and then, and leadership change too. Would do that. You start out basically with Charlemagne, who's a nine nine nine. Isn't that right? You know the way he was. Yeah. Uh, right. I don't have the game here in front of me. I got it in another room. I should have got uh, 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 gotten it out. And then you know you run into characters like Boleslav the Pole, I think, or, or <laughs> <laughs> who's a five five five. You know, like this, and you. you Hold it! Wait a minute. You built up all this power, and everything starts falling apart because you're you've got such a lousy leader. And then the other things that you think you can control. Al was talking about how do we measure the plague? And of course, the Mongols. That was the one that really got my students going when the, that Mongol horde would show up. I I spent uh. Often just before this, uh, the the three-hour seminar that uh, where I used, you know, how do you look at a grand uh, uh, scape of history, which is what the empires of the Middle Ages do uh, does, and and look at the components that are uh, are at play in it. I had a about two hours where I'd sit and talk about the Mongols, and which and and talk about what they. Did both to Europe and to China, and you know the world's largest land-based empire at one time. They controlled, I think, 22 or 23 percent of the Earth's uh, 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 landmass. Uh, land but the, the that Mongol horde would just show up and move around erratically and destroy all of the all of the work that uh, they. Slavs or Eastern uh, Eastern Germans or uh, what, whatever you had, had managed to, to uh, uh, put together in, in, in northern in northern Italy. And the same thing. It was also a Viking sea raider. That if you thought you were going to get away with it by hiding over in in, in you know, on a British Isle and you know use that here here came that exterior force that you're going to have to contend with. So it's the, the, the game, sure, history, it doesn't follow exactly what happens, but you get a recapitulation that sometimes, when, and when, when we'd play through maybe a couple of dozen turns, or I'd show how, how, how it would work, and you'd sit there and say, do you get a better feeling now for all the historical interaction that's going on in, it's not just going on in the, Middle Ages on this, it's going on now, and that's the connection I would uh, I'd make out of it. Yeah, one one of the things I wanted to get out there in the game was the fact that what one reason empires were built was because you not only established a military and political control over an area, but you you basically changed its culture. 
Uh, in many cases, you would change this language. That's what the Muslims did, uh, the the, uh, the Arabs from you know Arabia. Uh, a lot of countries that had spoken different languages before the Arab uh, explosion, as it were, at the beginning. That's at, you know the seven about the six hundreds actually. The the Islamic expansion was already uh, you know completed uh, its main sequence, as it were. But they forced uh, uh, captive you know conquered countries to adopt the Arab language. Uh, it didn't always succeed, but it did, you know, in many areas, uh, because, you know, Islam as a religion is not just a religion, it's a religious and political system. Uh, and that means, you know, uh, you're not really a, a true, a, a pure Muslim unless you're doing it in Arabic. That's why they will still kill in some parts of uh, the uh, Muslim world. You can get killed if you if you come out with a uh, a, a, a translation of the Quran. I mean, that's it's generally accepted now, but for a long time, it had to be in Arabic. And if you wanted to learn, you know, the, the Quran, you basically had to learn some Arabic. I mean, you learned it by rote. You basically, a lot of guys, uh, and it was mostly guys because women weren't educated. Um, uh, they simply, lo- you know, learned uh, by repetition, you know, by rote. Uh, and some of them learned what Arabic, what they were actually saying, you know, in their own language. But it was Haram. It was forbidden to uh, do the uh, the Quran in a translation. It was the same thing with the Bible for a while. You know, it had to be in, in Latin and what have you, and uh, and it was considered revolutionary. That was one thing that happened during the Protestant, you know, Reformation. They everybody wanted to uh, translate their the Bible into their um, their own language, and that's one reason why the the, the Church of Rome uh, was opposed to it. The Italians, who dominated and still to a certain extent do. Uh, the papacy, uh, they wanted to keep everything in Latin because they realized that if you translate the Bible into English or German or uh, French, whatever, uh, it's going to take the characteristics of the nation that it's in. And, and empires of the Middle Ages tried to show that. I mean, it was an important factor uh, in the in the in the permanence of empires and in, in the movement of you know languages and uh, religion, uh, you know, and basically culture. Um, you know, the, the Germans, I can't say the, it, it was worth the, the slaughter, you know, in, in, in imposing their, their technology and their, their culture on the, on the Slavs. Uh, but eventually there was a, a merger. In fact, up until now, I think, I know it, it was less during World War II, Hitler didn't uh, scrunch them out. There was still a community, a large community of, of Slavs uh, in Germany. They were south of Berlin, the Wends, the Wendish. The Wends. And they uh, like, uh, uh, like, things. Yeah. And what they did was they did what what a lot of uh, if we had if we had the uh, the game extending be off the board as into the into the Mongol lands the Mongols were very 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 not just they, they were not a horde they were not barbarians they were very intelligent and what they went on the reason they destroyed so much stuff in the Middle East and uh, and Europe uh, was because. They basically give you a, a they give you a choice. You know, you surrender, or we're going to kill you all and destroy your cities. And in some parts of the world, like Europe and the Middle East, uh, they refused, and they and that's why Baghdad got obliterated. I mean, that had a, that had a major impact on Islam. Uh, and these weren't these weren't well, they were sort of the reason they were random. The horde horde is simply a word for a you know a military army. It just means units. army. Or means army. Well, it's, 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 it's a section of an army, order. But anyway, the uh, they uh, the the Mongol units forces that that moved into the Middle East and into Europe were basically a, a reconnaissance by force and force. They were simply scouting, trying to find out, you know, uh, would it was it worth a major invasion? Because one thing the Mongols depended upon, and first they had. They had a military system that depended upon heavily armed warriors, just like the uh, the original Persians uh, in Roman times, where they had while well, the Romans were marching around with their very cleverly designed, uh, organized legion and what have you. The uh, the Persians were basically on horses, but that's stirrups yet. Yeah. Uh, but they had plate armor. The horses were armored. They were using the compound bow and spears, and this is what the Byzantines adopted and called them cataphracts. Uh, these were the ultimate, you know, mounted, uh, you know, until the Mongols showed up. The Mongols dispensed with a lot of the armor, but basically they they, they organized the army. They had uh, a large force 
of basic well basically everybody could use the compound bow but their tactics were they send up one unit of the army in and to pepper them with the the arrows and and remember the compound bow enabled a horseman to uh, use a bow with the power of the English longbow except it was much smaller and compact it required almost as much you know muscle power but a little less it was more efficient shall we say than the uh, than longbow but it was more it was more difficult to, to produce it was quite an invention um, but the Persians had it and the Mongols had a big time. And the Mongols obviously were superior because when they rolled into uh, into Baghdad in 1230, something like, I think like that, uh, they had to roll through Iran. And <laughs> Iran got pulverized twice, um, which they never forgot. Uh, and the uh, and that was all because of the uh, the, the the changing of the the civilization changes when the Muslims the only reason the Muslims conquered uh, the Persians uh, was because the Persians were having one of their uh, their periodic civil wars they were, when they weren't fighting foreigners they were fighting each other so they kept in practice and that's why Alexander the Great was able to conquer them uh, they were in, they were in the midst of one of their interminable civil wars and and Alexander an effective foreign general caught them at a bad moment and boom down went the empire for a while but it came back and it's trying to come back again uh, but the thing that thing is we had to build that into the game and if we had it uh, extending you know into the into the great Eurasian uh, you know plains uh, we would have had to involve things like what the Mongols were doing. Uh, where they would they would basically absorb a lot of areas. They say, well, hey, we've heard about you guys. You're the real deal. We surrender, and that's why a lot of former enemies, like the Turks in particular, many many flavors of Turks, you know, uh, eagerly join the alliance. Well, these guys are similar to us. You know, we got the funny eyes, and we ride horses, and we got these these pound pound bows, uh, and they're winning. So let's go with them, um, because the Mongols in general did it mainly for the loot. Loot and the sex, uh, not to put it too undaintily. Um, and uh, they they later discovered that when they started doing DNA tests, and they found out you know, a large percentage of the uh, of the East Asian you know the, the population of the, the former Mongol Empire could be traced back to a small group of uh, of ancestors. So they were very active in many ways. But anyway, they. Uh, that that would that was not a major factor in the in European and Middle Eastern history, except for the Mongol period, and which was already done. And it was nothing like it. It was rare for somebody to have so much success. It was built into empires because that did happen, but much more slowly. The yeah. the, the the Islamic armies, initial and Islamic in, uh, invasions, and the and the Mongols did it much more quickly. And that was decisive out in the areas where they were dominant. But all they all they hit Europe with was a was a reconnaissance in force, and then and what I'll say there, but was the there was a uh, the Khan, the great Khan had died, and everybody had to go back and vote. But and in 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 the in in the in the Middle East, the reconnaissance force was defeated, uh, was was out outright defeated. The the the, the Arabs after the um, after this, so what happened with Baghdad. Uh, they put their their differences aside. They got organized, and uh, of course, you know, the God was on their side. The Mongols didn't didn't believe God had anything to do with it. Uh, but it was only a reconnaissance force, and the Mongols realized that the uh, the Middle East didn't have enough grasslands to really support the entire you know Mongol army. Uh, Europe was a different matter, uh, and but they were kept so busy with the Slavic lands they conquered. The Russians were very you know, cantankerous. They were bad, you know, uh, subordinates, uh, you, know, uh, you know, provinces, as it were. Um, and uh, eventually they, you know, just, just frittered away. But they, I did that, I did that, I pushed the numbers at one point, found out that the Mongols killed a larger pr- pr- uh, proportion of the world population than the Nazis and, and, the, and the communists did during the early 20th century. I mean, that was, of course, they took longer doing it, but they didn't have, you know, uh, they didn't have uh, death camps and, and what have you and, 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 and modern weapons. Uh, they did it the old-fashioned way. Uh, and hopefully we'll never see that again because that was, that changed most of the world. It just didn't change Europe that much. It changed China for, for certain. It basically, uh, as, uh, you know, uh, as, uh, how should I put it? It slowed down China's, you know, technical and cultural advances. Uh, in fact, the uh, the last the Mongol the Mongol uh, emperors in China I forget when they died out, 
but they were they were soon replaced by the Manchurian, which are northern barbarians as far as the Chinese are concerned. So China never really recovered from all those foreign invasions. I mean, they adapted, and, you know, they absorbed the enemy, as it were. Um, but that was one reason why they were not in any way uh, prepared to deal with the European, uh, the appearance of the Europeans and their 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 ships with all of that firepower. I mean, one thing people don't realize: guns, cannons were a big deal, but they were devastating on ships because over land they were hard to transport. You had to drag them, you know. You had to work. They didn't have modern, you know, uh, suspension systems for for heavy weapons, but you could load pretty large cannon on, on warships, and that's why there were so many of them as the years went on, because if you want, and, and most populations then as, then as now live on coast along rivers and what have you, riverways, because that's the easiest way to trade. That was one way we traced the, uh, the flow of the, the, pandemic, the, uh, the plague, but there were some areas, especially like in Bohemia and, and Poland, where there weren't that many rivers going in there. And at one point we thought, well, that must be it, you know. So we use that as, as a primary criteria. And But those warships, European warships, you know, uh, a squadron of European warships would have like a 100 cannon, several hundred cannon. Uh, and they could come in and basically reduce a city to rubble, you know, within hours. And that, that, that impressed me in more ways than one. So, Jim, go ahead, Al. One of the things that the game is good at is big history. We get we get caught up in the weeds, you know, like there's these television shows, what history forgot and all that, missing the point that there is so much in history. We 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 tend to focus on these little things, and we miss the big things. And that's what you get yeah, in this game. And trees. You know, the, the, the people who were living, whether it was the fall of Rome or, or the, um, the Crusades or whatnot, uh, they didn't necessarily see what was happening. You know, yeah, they might see the Mongols coming through this week and whatnot, but they don't, you know, they don't see the, the big picture, you know, the global picture, the God's eye view, so to speak, of, of what is happening. And uh, uh, you know, it's a it's sort of a, a branch of history that that um, tends to be the real forgotten history. Al, that's that is the I, I think I alluded to this uh, earlier. That was one of the reasons I used the the, the game in that mm -hmm. uh, class. By the way, Al came as a guest lecture four or five times, you know, to show up to talk about something I was having there when I was uh, teaching in a semester. But that's – and tell and, – and say, look, these large-scale, these, these, these grand components are still at play now, and we don't see it. Sometimes all you see is, you know, what's next on the headline news, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a distortion. Well, well strategy, page, strategy page reflects that. I mean, a lot of people, I, nobody complains about it, but that's why I'm always sticking historical. Uh, sure. on, like, like even in your stuff that I edited, I think the latest one on Turkey, I stuck something in there about the, uh, the influence yeah. of the, yeah, the Turks, the Mongols, how it changed. Anyway, but anyway, well, we, we basically pay attention to that and point out the fact that these are – these are large historical, you know, trends going on. Like China, we we mention that a lot about China. You know what they call themselves, what they consider themselves, uh, how you interpret what. I mean, you can translate what the uh, Chinese media are saying, but you have to dig a little deeper. And it's it's possible to do in English now because so much of it is translated in English. Or if they if they what they often what the Japanese did anyway, uh, with a lot of countries try and do is they try and you know have one version for their own folks in their own language, and then when they translate it into English, they try and you know spin it a little bit to you know gain more traction with the 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 foreigners, the you know the, the barbarians or whatever the case may. Maybe, uh, but it's possible. Again, modern technology allows you more people to do that. More people, you know, they, like Al says, you know, we, we watch the, uh, you know, the network the headline news. Well, that may be changing because the, the news has gotten so political you know, in the last 10, 15 years, uh, and the, the surveys are showing that people just don't believe it. You know, they, I think I think people watch the news more for amusement, entertainment, uh, which is something else. Another trend. 
which started developing in the 60s and 70s. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. I mean, that, it, for a long time, he had two kinds of newspapers. He had the, the, had the uh, you know, the popular media, and then you had the more serious media, which basically tried to adhere to, you know, the big movements in history and, and the details of what was really going on. Um, but eventually, you know, when the ele- with the electronic media, especially with TV, especially when a lot of stations realized if they made the news more entertaining, <laughs> as it were, uh, you know, basically sacrificed everything for, for numbers, as it were, uh, they would maximize their, you know, their, their profits, as it were. Um, but uh, they, I think a lot of them are starting to realize that, hmm, what have we done? <laughs> and it's kind of hard to reverse it. So I'd like to spend the last few minutes here talking about uh, the project we did together, the Hundred Years' War. The, the actual impetus for the Hundred Years' War, you, you guys had uh, back in... I think I found a S&T 70 where it's mentioned of doing an 800 player game. Um, yes. So, so and, and it would be adjudicated by the computer. Right. And it would be turn based because there was no Internet. Right. Uh, Everybody would meld their mail their uh, moves in. And this was going on on other other companies had started this same type of thing up. Right. At that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we thought we obviously we thought we could do it better because we're the, we're the historical games people, right? Um, uh, yeah, and when, what we did, Hundred Years War started out that way, and for a while it was very successful, especially when we got over to uh, AOL. They were in that that one period of enormous growth and what have you. We were making some real money off of that. Uh, but as Dan pointed out, you know, they were the massive multiplier games that, you know, this particularly designed with the graphical interfaces and what have you. Uh, they were they were flooding in. There were many large companies, uh, non-game companies, which were investing in that. Uh, and that sort of flooded the market. But, yeah, we were there. Uh, GE was actually a, a pioneer in that. Uh, Genie, uh, their network. Uh, they they basically went looking for people willing to do online games. In fact, I think the right. uh, that fight command, whatever it was called, the uh, yeah, air, I think it was Air then. War, but I'm not sure. I can't remember back that well, far. It's but still being it's still being done. The the British right. guys, right? Um, and it, uh, I think they're still I think they're still in business. Right, and they had and, one of the first know. online fantasy games, uh, multiplayer uh, yeah. uh, fantasy yeah. games. So, you know, which later on we we see other versions of that. But um, the Hundred Years' War, you guys had been kicking this idea around for a long time. And one of the yeah, interesting we, things you did, Jim, we had started doing hmm? one of the interesting things you did was when I got involved in putting it into place on the Genie system, you handed me, oh, I don't know. A spreadsheet that had just a massive amount of information on it, and it was done in the old Borland uh, spreadsheet, which I can't remember what it was named. But you had actually put, and you were modeling in spreadsheets, the production systems, the how the armies interfaced with each other, and how much attrition they took as they were moving around and it was great for me as a programmer was I would just take those models and put them into the system uh, into code and uh, away we went we uh, we we launched our alpha very soon after we got started because we were testing these various systems uh, online but uh, the detail you know the detail that was in the online version of the Hundred Years' War was was outstanding. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that detail? Well, yeah, we had Al and I had started working on it when I was still at SPI. Uh, but again, you know, we one of the, the disadvantages of being a uh, you know an experienced uh, historical game development company is you got more ideas and you got resources to, to develop them all. And that one simply didn't have the uh, the payoff. 
you know, I I was the finance guy, and I do it. I crunch, I crunch the numbers. Nah, this is going to be cost us a lot of money to get started, and it, it's basically you know still a question mark as to exactly how much. There's a range of income we might expect, and of course, I was keeping an eye on the competition, uh, uh, which you know was proliferating at a rapid rate. Uh, but then you came along and you heard about it. I said, well, yeah, I can do that. And uh, I said, cool. Um, and uh, that's how we got started. The 100 Years War was always basically a volunteer operation. You know, there was no huge investment of money. Um, it was mostly our time, which I calculated was, you know, worth probably over $100,000. But, you know, we were doing it because we enjoyed it. Uh, you know, so if, you're, if, you're, if you enjoy your work, is it really work? Uh, which is why everybody tries to get a job they really enjoy doing, and most of us don't manage to do that, but a lot of us do. Uh, and those spreadsheets, yeah, it was boring. I forget what they called it. But anyway, it was one of the first spreadsheets to have, uh, have uh, uh, how should I put it, variables that you could calculate. Uh, I think Excel, not Excel, Mike, before Excel, the uh, last Lotus? Show up at, was it Lotus? No, Lotus, Lotus didn't have it only externally. Uh, Microsoft, uh, well, that's the one before Excel. But anyway, they came out with um, with uh, this in 84, something like that. And But Borland already had it. Borland sort of beat him to the punch, but Microsoft had the you know the bloodthirsty Bill Gates at their helm, the pirate Bill Gates. Um, and, uh, you know, he basically pushed Borland out of business. But Borland did very competitive word processors and, and spreadsheets. Quattro, I think it was called, something like that. Um, but, yeah, and I was – yeah, I was using it downtown because we had to create these financial models or, or you know, sub, sub programs, as it were. And I found the easiest way to do it was on a spreadsheet where I could basically build in the algorithms, which would actually operate in the spreadsheet. Not fast enough for production use, but I could give it to the programmers. That was my engineering spec. And they loved that stuff because there was no there was no ambiguity, as you would get often in a written spec. It was right there in a language programmers could understand. <laughs> there were algorithms. There were data there were data files. You know, you had you know the, the data, what kind of data, how much of the data, how it interacted, all those questions that programmers have to have, which I could never get mostly most non you know programming you know people to understand. Um, and to this day that's a problem. Anyway, uh, it, it was excellent for engineering specs, and I, I still use it to this day. Um, now Excel has a whole – they have extra add-on suites that do all sorts of voodoo stuff and what have you. And, uh, it's become sort of a plague because a lot of non-programmers, not just non-programmers, but people who should never become programmers, <laughs> uh, you know, they charge ahead you know, thinking they know what they're doing and they don't. And, and I, 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 I read across some banks that had some – Real disasters, you know, with some of the the noobs, the, uh, the noobs, as it were, you know, playing programmer because they could get the spreadsheets to sort of seem to work, and it didn't. And then when they started using it in a production environment, suddenly things went very, very wrong. And reporters had a hard time even reporting something like that. So they report some disaster, you know, at, at Deutsche Bank or whatever, and uh, only a few people on the in- outsiders you know, who were not in the bank understood what actually went on down there. You know, some overeager, you know, a junior, you know, uh, analyst or whatever uh, came up with a new derivative product, and they said, "Yeah, we tested it." <laughs> not coming out and saying, "Yeah, we tested it on a spreadsheet we did over the weekend." Um, and uh, so, yeah, but it was basically it's worth the risk if you have a, a couple of adults. You know, in charge, which many companies don't. Uh, you can control, you know, the, uh, the 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 cowboy, the reckless cowboy, you know, uh, iterations, uh, and it's still to this a, a a very good tool for that kind of work if you know what you're doing. If you don't, you know, it's the same old story. It's like same thing with war games. Nice thing with historical war games was you could you always had to serve you to history. You can't change the history, and that kept everybody honest. Uh, but when you got into fantasy and, and you know, in science fiction and what have you, you know, you could do whatever the hell you want. Who's going to tell you it's not realistic? Right. So one of the things we'll, that I want to end with is uh, something that Al mentioned. It was a favorite of the players, not not really. Uh, so we had, you know, 60 to 80 people playing the game simultaneously together, playing different roles. It was sort of a role-playing game with a with a yeah. historical bent, but the plague, the 
plague yeah. would start randomly and slowly eat up the countries. And we, we you could, like you talked about, uh, you could have areas that got skipped and it would move across. And it took a while for it to jump the English Channel and uh, have an effect over there. But it, as a simulation, it was fascinating to watch it just go through Europe and decimate these areas and decimate the armies and the minute arms that these uh and the and the economies right and the economies and the, and, and leadership because basically you had the, well, a lot of women like to play this game because basically you could play you know matchmaker uh and you're always looking for to, to you know marry your children off the people to to the the children of successful you know families people you know successful because it, basically the genetics was built in there and you know the, the more talented you were the more likely there was an algorithm in there for that the more likely your children you know would have those genes of course some of them were idiots um and i forget if we i think we hid that or although you didn't know yet you put you produced uh progeny your know, heirs as it were um and uh, by then it was too late, you know. You were married, and and uh, you know Henry VIII hadn't arrived yet. Uh, see, that's why we cut it off in the uh, you know 15th century, because then things things too too many variables that were which were real game changers, which couldn't arrive earlier for many reasons, uh, had to be taken into account. Because 700, uh, 1450, whatever it was, was a was basically a period that was for all its seeming chaos was stable. In other words, the people were playing by the same basic rules uh, of physics as well as politics throughout that entire period. And before that, you know, you had these, these organized empires, you know, the Romans and, and what have you, and, and the chaotic. I mean, Al's done some games on, you know, uh, before that. And, of course, after that, you know, you had the, 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 uh, the industrial, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, and that was a game changer. But as Dan pointed out, you know, the, 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 the major uh, trends are still there. They're just using different tools, as it were. But it was easier to do empires in the Middle Ages because the Middle Ages was really a period of great change, but the basics stayed the same. Well, we are out of time, and I think that's a good place to end. Um, we still have the 100 Years War site up. It's thehundredyearswar.com if people want to go see it. Uh, we don't have any games running, but you can go look at uh, Jim and Al put together a book on the 100 Years War that's online. And uh, there's other information up there about the game. And so you can take a, a gander at that. So if you buy Empire of the, the Middle Ages from Decision Games and you go look online, you can, you can sort of see the whole trend of, of what happened. But it was certainly fun to take and take your ideas and, and Al's research and uh, put it into the computer and make it come alive. Uh, like it hadn't been able to in in the detail that we did individual fiefs and and barons and like that that you weren't able to do in the board game because you just couldn't deal with that much detail. But <clears throat> we still have people contacting us and telling us uh, the game was a major part of their lives and they still remember it and uh, the stories we could tell. <laughs> so, but we'll leave it at that. <laughs> 